chapter 6, Romans chapter 6, and please stand for the reading of God's Word. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin, once for all. But the life He lived, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is life. We pray, Lord, that you would do your work in us by your spirit as you have promised to do in the lives of your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. If someone were to ask you, what does it mean to be a Christian, how would you respond? If someone were to ask you, what does it mean to be a Christian, how would you respond? What would your answer be? What would you say? Whatever your answer, it would explain something about what you believe about salvation and about the Christian life. It would explain something about what you place your trust and confidence in, what you place your hope in. A few years ago, I was reading G.K. Chesterton, and he said one of our greatest problems is misplaced confidence. And some indeed have a a misplaced confidence, and it comes out when answering the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? The Apostle Paul, the answer to the question, would unequivocally focus on union with Christ. Union with Christ. What does it mean to be a Christian? A lot of things, but primarily it means to be in union with Christ by grace through faith in union with Christ by grace through faith. The doctrine of union with Christ was absolutely central to Paul's doctrine of salvation and the Christian life. And thus, Christ church, it should be central to ours as well. One thing that keeps coming to my mind over the last few weeks and even months is I believe after nine years and hundreds of sermons and Many, many books and many, many conversations and many, many sessions within 
the Shorter Catechism and the Larger Catechism and the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Heidelberg Catechism and allusions to other uh, confessions of faith. And as we have been steeped in this over the years, in the last nine years, as a, a fairly new church, you know, we, we think, well, nine years, that's, that's, that's pretty old, right? Uh, not when you uh, hear about the 250th anniversary of a sister church. No, it's not very old. But I do believe we are, we are at a place where we are, we are drilling down in a way that is evidencing some, some maturity. And now more than ever, I believe, as I seek to, to read the times, to try to discern the times in which we live, and to see the moral degradation and, and chaos and the, the spiraling down of, of anything that is good. In fact, a hatred for the things that are good and a, a celebration of the things that are wicked. As I see this, I, I do believe with some who are, who are encouraging the church to stop being so superficial, to stop entertaining, to stop with all the, the me-centered nonsense and to drill down into what the gospel truly is to understand what Christ has truly done for us and to live in that grace. And by living in that grace, we will be able, dear ones, to stand firm in the grace of God. No matter what, no matter what may come against us. And if you're reading the same news articles that I'm reading and the same news sites that I'm reading and you're hearing what's coming out of our nation's capital and you're hearing the craziness coming out of, of, of the world and our culture, you recognize that Christians are a less and less tolerated people. Have you recognized that? I've been reading some debate about whether or not times have changed. Haven't, hasn't the world always been wicked? Well, yes, it has. But there has certainly been a movement to intolerance in the world in which we live, as it concerns basic, foundational Christian truth. And so, how do we respond to this? Do we, are we just simply retreatists? Do we dig a hole and put our head in the hole and, and, and say, I'm just going to ignore everything going on and just hope everything gets better? No, we don't want to do that. Nor do we want to say, hey, let's go out and change the culture. That's the most important thing. So, pastor, start preaching politics from the pulpit because that's really what we need. That's really going to make a difference. We must reject both of these things. The retreatist mentality, the politicization of the pulpit, the focus on social action. While there may be some good things to do as a, as a Christian and as an American citizen that God may be calling you to do in your life, what we need to be and what we need to do as a church is to grow in our understanding of the gospel so that when the time comes, we are able to stand firm in the grace of God. You see, union with Christ is a doctrine that as a church, if we grasp, it will take us to new depths in our walk with God. To new depths of Christian maturity. 
of saying no to sin and, and yes to Christ and, and God-centered obedience. Union with Christ will deepen our assurance of our salvation so that we don't have a misplaced confidence in our own works or, or in our own actions. And so union with Christ is a precious doctrine. It was central to Paul's understanding of salvation in the Christian life and all the apostles, and it should be central to ours. Ian Hamilton, in his book called Salvation, Full and Free in Christ, explains that, quote, in the New Testament, Christians, perhaps surprisingly, are rarely called by that name. Only in three places are believers called Christians in the Bible. The normal and almost invariable way that Christians are described in the New Testament is as those who are in Christ. In Christ. This two-word description, he writes, identifies the essential heart of what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is someone who has been brought by God's grace through faith into a living, vital relationship with Jesus Christ. So much so that he or she is in Christ, united indissolubly to Him. Dear ones, think about how the New Testament describes the relationship between Christ and His people. In John 15, we are described as branches attached to Jesus, who is the living vine. Apart from Him, we are told we can do nothing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and in Romans 12, we are called the body of Christ and He is our living head. You see that union there between Christ and His people? In Ephesians 5, Paul analogizes marriage union between a man and a woman to explain the unbreakable union between Christ and His bride, the church. And finally, in 1 Peter chapter 2, Christians are described as living stones being built up together in a holy temple with Christ as the cornerstone, holding the entire structure together. Once again, union with Christ. Dear ones, if we do not think of our union with Christ as the focal point of our Christian identity, as the very root and foundation of our redemption, then our conception of salvation and the Christian life is severely wanting. Broad evangelicalism has set forth the Christian life, has conceived of the Christian life in all kinds of superficial ways, some of them having some truth to them, but none of them having the kind of emphasis and weight as union with Christ does in the Bible. This is what God is teaching us in the book of Romans, especially, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, in Romans 6 through 8. But union with Christ is not limited to the book of Romans. And once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. Uh, how many of you, when you really came to embrace the doctrine of God's sovereignty in salvation, and perhaps you fought against it at first? I did for a while. I did when I was in college. I gave all the typical arguments given against God's sovereignty in salvation. And then, by God's grace and because of His patience with me, he taught me through His Word, and now as I turn the pages of Scripture, I see this doctrine everywhere. It's undeniable. It's so clearly set forth in the Bible, it's, it's everywhere to be seen. And the true, it's also true of union with Christ. When we begin reading our New Testaments with this understanding in mind, we see it everywhere. And why wouldn't we? 
Why wouldn't we? Because isn't Christ meant to be at the very center of our understanding of salvation? Isn't Christ our life? Isn't it in His death and in His resurrection that we live? Aren't we going to heaven because of what He has done? Doesn't the entire Old Testament joyfully and clearly anticipate the coming of Jesus Christ? He is our Lord and Savior, and it's a union with Christ that is clearly set forth in Scripture. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul presents to us a cascade of God's grace centered on union with Christ. Over and over and over again, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul employs those two words, in Christ, to teach the Ephesian believers and us what our salvation means and what is the, salvation, what is the, the foundation of our new identity. Ephesians 1, 3-14, starting in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, what? In Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's never apart from, but in union with Christ, that we receive every spiritual blessing. Verse 4, even as He chose us, what? In Him. Wait a minute. Are you saying, Pastor, that even before time, before the foundation of the world, God chose me in Christ? Yes. It's exactly what Paul is teaching. Even as He, God the Father, chose us in Him, God the Son, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Verse 7, in Him, in Christ, in union with Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and on earth. Now look at verse 11. In Christ, that is united to Him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. In Christ, in Christ, in Him, in Him. Over and over again, we are being reminded that salvation comes from our union and communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. We are in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Look at chapter 2 with me. First, Paul describes who we were. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. That's our spiritual condition. In our natural selves, this is our spiritual condition. Not, not almost dead. Not just about dead. Not with a bad head cold but spiritually dead. And then as, as spiritual zombies, as it were, we once walked 
following the course of this world, living by the world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So what this is saying is that if you live according to the course of this world and you live according to your appetites to the flesh, and you're really not very interested in what God has to say about how you live, and you really aren't, don't have affection towards Him and Christ, then you are still under God's wrath and judgment. You are there. Look at verse 4. And again, we're going to hear about union with Christ. But God, he tells these Ephesian believers, but God being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Underline that phrase, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Look at verse 6. And raised us up, what? With him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Our salvation is rooted and grounded in union with Christ. We are made alive in him. And even now with this mystical spiritual union we have with him, even now as he's seated on the right hand of God in a profound and mysterious and incomprehensible way, We are seated with him, and one day we will know the fullness of that when we enter glory. Because what is true of him is true of us in a very real sense in regards to our salvation. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Now listen, Created in Christ Jesus for good works. What do you mean? Created in Christ Jesus for good works. And so when I'm brought from death to life in union with Christ, I am a new creation, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17. The old has gone. The old dominion to sin and, and slavery to the flesh and to the devil I'm no longer under that dominion. I've now been brought into union with Christ and I'm a new creation and I'm beginning to experience in part what I will know in full in the new heavens and the new earth, in the new creation. This is the glory of the gospel. Please, please get this. Please think and meditate upon this and pray about this after this service is over. The gospel is the good news that breaks into time and saves wretched sinners. And it brings us from death to life. This good news is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. And when we are brought into union with Christ, we are a new creation. The old has gone. The the new has come. And the new is coming. Because there's a now and not yet dimension to this, right? We experience now in part what we will know in what? In full later. What we taste now, we will taste in full later. 
you know, we try to make communion somewhat bearable in terms of the bread and the, the wine that we use. I think it was six or seven years ago, I, I called Pastor Ross in my study and I said, Pastor, that wine you're buying is awful. What is that? We're saying taste and see that the Lord is good and the wine is horrible. I know the wine, Isaiah 25, will not taste as good here ever as it will taste in the new heavens and the new earth. But it should taste somewhat good. And the bread, you know, sometimes I go to churches and I eat this bread. It's just nasty. It's a little, little tiny cracker and it kind of just melts on your tongue. What is this? See, it's really a picture, isn't it? That what we taste here, what we know here, what we experience here, in part, in our, because of our union with Christ, we will know in full later. And, and we have that indissoluble, unbreakable union with Christ. That is what it means to be a Christian. We're in union with Him. And because we are in union with Him, we receive all the spiritual blessings. What are those spiritual blessings? We are born again. We are declared righteous. We are counted as righteous. We are justified. Our sin no longer counts against us because it counted against Christ on the cross. We don't bear our guilt anymore because Christ died for our guilt and our sin. And Christ rose from the dead. And so we're alive in Him and we receive this justification. We're we receive adoption into God's family. We, we receive the gift of, of sanctification where he is changing us and transforming us into the image of Christ. And one day we will be glorified. And we receive all of this because we are not on our own anymore. We're in Christ. We're with him. And at the judgment to be apart from him is still to stand in your own sin. And there's nothing more important I could say to you this morning, dear ones. And I know so many in this room are trusting in Christ and have given evidence of that. But perhaps some are here this morning and still dwelling in and living in sin under its dominion, under its power. Today is the day of salvation. For some in this world who will sit under the gospel. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. To be united to Christ is no longer to be under the realm, dominion, and condemnation of sin for the believer. That's the old life. That's the former life. We live under the realm and dominion and freedom of God's indelible grace. In union with Christ, the believer is set free, not only from the penalty of our sins, but from the reigning power of our sins and its terrible wages. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means that we are united to Christ through faith. We are united to our crucified, resurrected, ascended, and exalted Savior, the one who paid for our sins with his perfect life on Calvary's cursed tree. And who rose again for our justification. The one in whom we have the forgiveness of sins. 
and imputed righteousness. Another verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He made Him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. The apostles' entire conception of and aim in ministry was informed and driven by this doctrine of union with Christ. Colossians 1.28, Him we proclaim. Paul is saying, Him, that is Christ, we, the apostles, proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature, what? In Christ, in union with Christ. Once again, we must ask ourselves this morning, is this how we understand the nature and meaning of the Christian life? It should be. No, it must be. Because Paul goes to great lengths in all of his epistles, and the other apostles do as well, to, to underscore this foundational doctrine, not least here in Romans 6. And I've spent a little extra time this morning unpacking this doctrine because I believe, as I mentioned at the outset of this message, that if we as a congregation are going to stand firm in the grace of God, to not flinch, at the world who is now raising its eyebrows at us and even scowling at us for holding to basic Christian doctrine, that we would not only stand firm, but do so with a heart filled with love and with compassion. We've already spent two Lord's Days in these first 11 verses, and I want us to think upon them briefly today to draw out just a couple of more foundational truths about union with Christ in the Christian life. The first is this. Union with Christ grants the sinner both justification and sanctification. This is a massively important point. Because to be in union with Christ means that the sinner is saved not only from the penalty of sin, but also set free from the slavery of sin and death. So to be brought from this, to be saved means you're brought from this realm where we are a slave to sin and brought into union with Christ and thus beginning this life of growing grace and holiness. Look with me at Romans 6, 17 and 18. Paul writes, You who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart. Having been set free from sin, you've become slaves of righteousness. We ought to understand ourselves as united to Christ and thus set free from the slavery of sin and having become slaves of righteousness. You're a slave one way or the other, dear one. Either a slave of Satan and of sin and death and hell, or a slave of righteousness because you are united to Christ. How have we been set free from slavery to sin? Union with Christ. And Paul here, once again, is trying to save us from falling into one of two ditches. The first one is legalism, that we are saved by our good works. Legalism is being on the treadmill of spiritual performance. 
either living with no assurance, because you never feel that you are doing enough, or you have false assurance because you think that God accepts you based on your good intentions or your good works. The other ditch is antinomianism, having the attitude that since Christ died for us and has paid for our sins and pours out His grace abundantly on us, then we need not be concerned really about the way that we live. God can be an afterthought in our lives. Jesus is a footnote in the essay of our lives. He's not part of the main story. He's just kind of an afterthought. And God's okay with that, we think. That's antinomianism. But in union with Christ, we recognize we have died to sin and are raised to walk in the newness of life. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And so legalism and antinomianism are both destroyed with a proper view of union with Christ. Because to be brought into union with Christ, we recognize that it's because of Him that we are saved. And to be brought into union with Christ recognizes that we have died to sin, we are no longer slaves of it, and thus we live in the Lord. Look with me at chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it. The second final thing I want to mention this morning from this text in connection with union with Christ is that what is true of Christ in his life, death, and resurrection is true of us. What is true of Christ in his life, death, and resurrection as our federal head, as the perfect human, as it were, who was also God, that in his humanity, as the second Adam, What is true of him is true of us. This is amazing. Let this sink in. Since we were united to him in his death and resurrection, everything that is true of him in his standing before God as humanity, it's true of us. He died to sin once for all on the cross, and in him, thus, we have died to sin. He rose from the dead And in Him, therefore, we have risen to newness of life in Him. In other words, we've been born again to a living hope by the Holy Spirit. Again, look with me at Romans 6, starting in verse 5. Union with Christ all over this passage. Verse 5. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. That resurrection... It has both dynamics for this life and the next. You see, to be united to Christ is to be born again, to be a new creation. But one day, just as Christ's physical body rose from the dead, so those who are spiritually united to Christ, their bodies also will rise from the dead. And so there's that present dynamic of being in Christ, and there's also that eschatological or future dynamic of being united to Christ. Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, wait a minute, pastor, 
Paul is saying we died with Christ. Yes, we did die with Christ because we were united to him in his death. We have died with Christ. We believe we also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over whom? Over him. Have you thought about this? Look what that text says again. Death no longer has dominion over him. What does this mean? That death at one point did have dominion over him. Why did death have dominion over Christ? Because he paid the wages of sin for you and for me. And the wages of sin is what? Is death. Christ was under the dominion of death. But look there. It says there that death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lived, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is why we are not afraid to die. This is why those who are in parts of North Africa and the Middle East and Asia who are literally being martyred for the faith are not afraid to die. This is why Jan Hus sang psalms as he was being burned at the stake in 1415 at the Council of Constance. Because they know that to be in union with Christ is to never be separated from him. To be in union with Christ is to know that you have an indissoluble union. And as a Christian believer, you are raised in him and one day shall physically be raised in him and ushered into glory. What is true of Christ in all of these ways, died to sin, no longer does death have dominion over him, raised unto new life, is true of us. What is true of him is true of us because we are united to him. Now, do we still suffer the effects of this present evil age? Do we still have remaining indwelling sin, which we are called to put to death and to mortify? Yes, we do. But we are to count ourselves no longer under sin's authority and dominion and power but under God's grace, slaves to righteousness, walking in his truth and in his love and by his spirit. Why would we want to give ourselves to the sin and to the world who put our Savior on the cross? You see, it's not making a bunch of rules in your journal that makes you hate sin more. It's keeping your eyes on Christ who died for you Dear one, who gave his life on the cross for you, that he would free you from the dominion and penalty of sin and death and hell, and that he would bring you to himself, unite you to himself by the Spirit, and usher you into glory. So, dear ones, away with all the superficial, man-centered conceptions of the gospel. Away with all the consumeristic trite, worldly, 
me-centered versions of salvation and the Christian life. Away with the therapeutic gospel. Away with the pragmatic gospel. Away with the selfish, me-centered, individualistic gospel. And in with the doctrine of union with Christ, which is all over the pages of our Bible and informs our Reformed confession. Nineteenth-century hymn writer John Kent captured the doctrine of union with Christ beautifully in a hymn that he wrote in the early 19th century. Twixt Jesus and the chosen race subsists a bond of sovereign grace that hell with its infernal train shall ne'er dissolve or rend in twain. This sacred bond shall never break, though earth should to her center shake. Rest, doubting saint, assured of this, for God has pledged His holiness. He swore, but once the deed was done, t'was settled by the great three-one. Christ was appointed to redeem all that the Father loved in Him. Hail, sacred union, firm and strong. How great thy grace, how sweet the song. That rebel worms should ever be one with incarnate deity. One in the tomb, one when he rose, one when he triumphed o'er his foes. One when in heaven he took his seat where seraphs sung at hell's defeat. Blessed by the wisdom and the grace, the eternal love and faithfulness. That's in the gospel scheme revealed and is by God the Spirit sealed. How then shall we live? If it is true of us that in Christ we've been set free from the curse and dominion of sin, how should we live in this world ruled by sin? Look with me at verse 12 of chapter 6. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Dear Christian believer, if you have for various reasons, gotten tangled up in patterns of sin that are obstructing your communion with God, that are giving you a heart that's cold towards the Lord. Repent of that sin and throw yourself into the merciful arms of a loving and a patient Savior. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Turn from your sin and look to Christ by grace through faith. I began this message with a question. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means that we are united to Christ. May this be the, the instinct and the, the impulse, the the. the, the uh, the, resp- the quick response to the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? It means I'm united to Christ. 
an indissoluble union eternally cemented by the Holy Spirit, who is the seal of our inheritance, a union that provides the privilege of communion with God through faith in Jesus. Is there anything better than communion with God in Christ? The notable 17th century Scottish minister, Andrew Gray, declared rightly that, quote, one moment of the enjoyment of Christ is worth 10,000 eternities of the enjoyments of the choicest things in this world. May our union and communion with Christ, dear church, cultivate this heart perspective. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the doctrine of union with Christ. For its clarity as set forth in your word. We thank you for reminding us this morning of your love for us, of your purpose for us, of your plan for us, the way you have saved us, have made us your own, and are working in us by your spirit and word for your glory. Father, help us to get our minds around this glorious doctrine, one that we will study and consider in one way or another for the rest of our lives as 